I'm Damien Barr and you are listening to the next edition of my Literary Salon podcast. Thank you for listening. You could be listening to anything, but you're listening to this and to me and to Jojo Moyes, who is about to give you the premiere of her new novel, The Giver of Stars. It's just been reviewed as her best yet, and it's the story of five female horseback librarians, yes, in Kentucky in 1937. It twists and turns like the mountain pathways, and it will move you and make you cry, and you'll hold the book close to your heart just after you finish it. So enjoy this interview with Jojo. This very special salon here in one of the world's most special. I'm glad to see you've got an actual fan of Brian now. In one of the world's most special libraries. You're allowed to make noise tonight. There'll be no shushing. Don't worry. I actually heard one of the librarians say earlier, it's never been this noisy in here. (laughs) Um, So the London Library, as you know, now opened in 1841. Amazing alumni, Kipling, Christie, Wolfe. These days you can find Andrew Marr, Sarah Waters, Claire Tomlin, people like that scribbling among the stacks. They've all got favourite desks, apparently. They all get in early, we put a towel down, you know. I'm told that there are quiet corners of the library where you might find more than one member at a time. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, I had a, a wee wander earlier, um, and I was just doing a bit of like bibliomancy. What are my thoughts? What are they leading me to? The book's on the shelf. Um, I was thinking about the current political situation in this country and the Tory leadership race, and I picked out three blue books. I just realised they're all blue. God. (laughs) What Next by Dee McHale. And this is by somebody called H.A. Manhood. Um, (laughs) I wonder why I picked that one up. I just... And it's called A Long View of Nothing. (laughs) And then the final book is called the man who never understood. <laughs> Brilliant. Something for everybody there um, in the stacks. And apparently you can borrow books for as long as you want, and there are no fines um, ever, which is brilliant. Um, unless you're waiting for a book. Um, in which case, annoying. Um, anyway, so, but it's lovely to be here. As a lifelong library fan, I know, and we're going to be talking about libraries and the power of books tonight, I know that libraries aren't just places of learning. They are sanctuaries. It's a temporary room of one's own, even if the person sitting near you types loudly on their laptop or as a mouse breather or whatever. It's a still a space for you. Um, the library that I went to as a kid was not as fancy as this, but it had all the books that I needed to get me here tonight to be with you. Every library is special. Last year, 130 libraries were closed in the UK by our government, so we must all work hard to fight for our libraries and be vigilant about them um, and acknowledge the amazing work that they do um, in our communities and also work towards a stage where basically every library is as fabulous as this one. That's what I would like. I'll send my manifesto. <laughs> so we're thrilled to host this, this salon here in partnership with the London Library. It's the perfect setting for a book all about the power of books. Jojo is a beloved part of the salon family. She premiered me before you at Shoreditch House was anybody here that night? Raise your hand. If it, yes, 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 yes. Lots of you were. Um, it was a very special night. Um, it's a very special book and it changed Jojo's life as a writer and the lives of everybody um, who has read it. And she's returned 
every new book, and we're really glad that she's here tonight to share this epic story with you all. And just backstage, before we came on, she got her first review. Um, it was good, so she will be coming out. Um, she won't be jumping out, she will be coming out. Um, it was a review in the bookseller, and it said it's her best yet. So a round of applause for Georgia. The Giver of Stars is set in Depression-era America, um, 1937. Depressing-era America is now. Um, just important to distinguish between the two. Um, in The Giver of Stars, we follow five extraordinary women and their horses. Um, there was some discussion earlier about what's the difference between a horse and a pony. I'm sure we'll get to that later. Very important, apparently. Um, we follow these five very different women on an unforgettable journey through the mountains of Kentucky. And they are a part of Eleanor Roosevelt's travelling library. So they took books to people who didn't have any. The story twists and turns like those mountain pathways. Um, it's fantastic. The five women are very different, um, but they must all face danger together. From moonshiners who are making moonshine up in their cabins, to snakes, from mountains to floods. And basically also just men generally. Um, there are some good ones, but men. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> nothing going on in my life right now that you need to know about. It's fine. Um, so the women push on, believing passionately in their mission to bring books to people who have never had any, furnishing them with stories and facts that will change your life. It's a book that you will hold close to your heart long after you finish it. I absolutely loved it. Please welcome Jojo Moyes. I just want to say how relieved I am that Damien didn't make me walk down the stairs like he was threatening to. There was some discussion about that earlier, about those heels and those stairs. Yeah, exactly. that was That's health and safety right there. Welcome. Thank you for having me. We were trying to work out which number this book was earlier, and you genuinely don't know how many novels you've written. Sheila, my agent's agent? in the audience. Oh, not to put you on the spot, I think it's number 15. I think it might be. I think it's number 15. It is incredible. This is your first UK reading of it, so mm -hmm. everybody's going to get you know, the whole Kentucky accent tonight, right? Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're doing the full y'all. I just want to apologise in advance to anybody who comes from Kentucky, anyone American, or in fact anyone who has any interest in accents <laughs> whatsoever, but I will give it, I'm committed, I will give it my all. Okay, enthusiasm's very important. Exactly. Um, so let's just go into the context for the story, because I want to know where the inspiration came from about the WPA, about these horseback mm -hmm. librarians, and then, you, then you're going to read to us. So. Okay, well, most of my books come from snippets of news or bits of information I've seen somewhere, and uh, like most writers, I tend to read the entire internet before I start work every day. And I came across a magazine called the Smithsonian Magazine, and there was a short piece in it about the pack horse librarians of Kentucky. Uh, which was something I'd never heard of, which was, as Damien said, this collection of women who would ride out up to 140 miles a week through extraordinarily rough terrain um, to take books to very remote rural families, often who couldn't read, 
And it was because Roosevelt, after the Depression, felt that people were falling prey to snake oil salesmen and religious fundamentalism. So I can't imagine why it resonated yeah. quite as much as it does. But I had that thing that you occasionally get as a writer where you just go, this is mine, and I have to write this. And I felt desperately proprietorial about the story immediately, because it basically includes all my favorite things, which is books, libraries female friendship and horses. And, um, yeah. So, yeah, I pretty much started straight away, booked myself a ticket to Kentucky. Right, we're going to get to Kentucky okay. and your travels there and all that research, but why don't you give us um, a couple of wee readings? Okay, again, apologies for the accent. No laughing. Y'all are in for a treat. <laughs> <laughs> well, it can't be worse than that, no. so... <laughs> Thanks, David. You've set the bar so low. I get that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not bring Mike into it yet. Um, the first memory Marjorie O'Hare had was of sitting under her mother's kitchen table and watching through her fingers as her father slugged her 14-year-old brother Jack across the room, knocking two teeth clean out of his jaw when he tried to stop him beating her mother. Her mother, who took a fair number of beatings but would not tolerate that same fate for her children, promptly threw a kitchen chair at her husband's head, leaving him with a jagged scar on his forehead that remained until he died. He hit her back with a smashed leg of it, of course, once he was able to stand straight, and the fight had only stopped when Papa O'Hare had staggered round from next door with his rifle at his shoulder and murder in his eyes and threatened to blow Frank O'Hare's damn head clean off his shoulders if he didn't stop. It wasn't that Grandpa believed that his son beating on his wife was inherently wrong, Marjorie discovered some time later, but Meemaw had been trying to listen to the wireless and half the holler couldn't hear past the screaming. There was a hole in the pine wood wall that Marjorie could put her whole fist into for the rest of her childhood. Jack left for good that day, a wad of bloodied cotton in his mouth and his one good shirt in his kit bag, and the next time Marjorie heard his name, leaving was considered such an act of family disloyalty he was effectively disappeared from family history, was eight years later when they received a wire to say that Jack had died after being hit by a railroad truck in Missouri. Her mother had cried salty, heartbroken tears into her apron, but her father had held a book at her and told her to pull her damn self together before he really gave her something to cry about and disappeared to his stills. The book was Black Beauty, and Marjorie never forgave him for the fact that he ripped the back cover while doing so, and somehow her love for her lost brother and her desire to escape into the world of books became melded together into something fierce and obstinate in that one broken-backed copy. Don't you marry one of these fools, her mother would whisper to her and her sister as she tucked them into the big hay bed in the back room. You make sure you two get as far from this damn mountain as you can, as soon as you can. You promised me. The girls had nodded solemn promises. Virginia had got away all right, got as far as Lewisburg, only to marry a man who turned out to be just as handy with his fists as their father had been. Her mother, thank goodness, was not alive to see it, having caught pneumonia six months after the wedding and died within three days, a strain which also took three of her brothers. Their graves were marked with small stones on a hill overlooking the hollow. When her father died, killed in a drunken gunfight with Bill McCulloch, the latest sorry episode in a clan feud that had lasted generations, the residents of Baileyville noted that Marjorie O'Hare didn't shed so much as a tear. Why would I, she said when Pastor McIntosh asked her if she was quite all right. I'm glad he's dead. Can't do no more harm to no one. The fact that Frank O'Hare was reviled in town and that everyone knew she was right didn't stop them deciding that the surviving O'Hare girl was as odd as the rest of them, and frankly, the fewer of that bloodline still around, the better. Can I ask you about your family? Alistair had asked her as they saddled up the horses shortly after dawn. 
Marjorie, her thoughts still lost somewhere in Sven's strong, hard body, had to be asked twice before she realized what Alice was saying. Ask what you want. She glanced over. Let me guess. Someone tell you you shouldn't be around me because of my daddy? Well, yes, Alice said after a pause. Mr. Van Cleve had given her a lecture on this exact subject the previous evening, accompanied by much spluttering and finger-pointing. Alice had wielded the good name of Mrs. Brady as a shield, but it had been an uncomfortable exchange. Marjorie nodded as if this was no surprise. She swung her saddle onto the rail and ran her fingers over Charlie's back, checking him for bumps and sores. My daddy supplied moonshine to half the county, shot up anyone who tried to take over his patch, shot him if he thought they'd even thought about it, killed more people than I know of and left scars on everyone he was close to. Everyone? Marjorie hesitated, then took a couple of steps over to Alice. She rolled up her shirt sleeve, tugging it above the elbow to reveal a waxy coin-shaped scar on her upper arm. Shot me with his hunting rifle when I was 11 because I sassed him. If my brother hadn't pushed me out the way, he would have killed me. Alice took a moment to speak. Didn't the police do anything? Police? Up here, people take care of things their own way. When Meemaw found out what she'd done, what he'd done, she took a horsewhip to him. Only two people he was ever scared of, his own mum and pop. Marjorie put her head down so that her thick, dark hair fell forward. She ran her fingers nimbly over her scalp until she found what she was looking for and pulled her hair to one side, revealing an inch-wide gap of bare skin. That's where he pulled me up two flights of stairs by my hair three, do- three days after Meemaw died, pulled a handful clean out. They say he still had half my scalp attached to it when he dropped it. You don't remember? Nah, he'd knocked me out before he did it. Alice stood in stunned silence. Marjorie's voice was as level as always. I'm so sorry, Alice faltered. Ah, don't be. When he died, there were two people in this whole town came to his funeral, and one of those only did because they felt sorry for me. You know how much this town loves to meet up? You imagine how much they hated him to not even turn up at a man's funeral? You don't miss him, then. Round here, Alice, you get a lot of what you call sundowners. They're good old boys in daylight, but come nightfall when they get to drinking, they're basically a pair of fists looking for a target. Alice thought of Mr. Van Cleve's bourbon-filled rants and shivered despite the heat. Well, my daddy wasn't even a sundowner. He didn't need drink. Cold as ice. Don't have a single good memory of him. Not a single one? Marjorie thought for a moment. Oh, no, you're right, there was one. Alice waited. Yep, the day the sheriff stopped by to tell me he was dead. So do I. She must have been so much fun. She was so much fun to write. Marjorie is basically the me I would like to be if I had more cojones. (laughs) Okay, so now this this is going to put the accents to test because it's many people. Um, So can I just say, so Jojo wasn't forgetting to do the accent. Alice is English. So the English person to a Kentucky person. Right, yes, Alice is English. I should have stressed that before we started. In the first months in which she had moved to Baileyville, Alice had almost enjoyed the weekly church dinners. Having a fourth or fifth person at their table seemed to lift the atmosphere in the somber house, and the food was mostly a cut above Annie's usual greasy fare. Mr. Van Cleve tended to be on best behaviour, and Pastor Mackintosh, their most frequent visitor, was essentially a kind man, if a little repetitive. The most enjoyable element of Kentucky society, she observed, was the endless stories, the misfortunes of families, gossip about neighbours, every anecdote served up beautifully formed and with a punchline that would leave the table rocking with laughter. If there were more than one raconteur at the table, it would swiftly become a competitive sport. 
But more importantly, these animated tall tales left Alice to, lead, to eat her food largely unobserved and unbothered, or at least it once had. So when are you two young'uns going to bless my old friend here with a grandchild or two then, huh? That's what I keep telling them, Mr. Van Cleef pointed his knife at Bennett and then at Alice. A house isn't a home without a babby running through it. Maybe when our bedroom isn't so close to yours that I can hear you break wind, Alice responded silently, scooping mashed potato onto her plate. Maybe when I'm free to walk to the bathroom without covering myself to the ankles. Maybe when I don't have to listen to this same conversation at least twice a week. <laughs> Pastor McIntosh's sister, Pamela, visiting from Knoxville, observed, as someone invariably did, that her son had gotten his new wife with child on the very day of their wedding. Nine months to the day the twins came. Can you believe that? Mind you, she has that house running like clockwork. You watch, she'll wean those two, and the day after she'll be caring again. Aren't you one of those pack horse librarians, Alice? I am, indeed. The girl's gone from the house all day, Mr. Van Cleve exclaimed. Someday she gets back so tired she can barely keep her eyes open. Strapping lad like you, Bennett. Young Alice should there should be too tired to get on a horse in the first place. She should be bow-legged like a cowboy, though. The two men roared with laughter. Alice forced a wan smile. She glanced over at Bennett, who was steering black beans around his plate with intent focus. Then she looked at Annie, who was holding the sweet potato dish and gazing at her with something that looked uncomfortably like satisfaction. Alice hardened her look until the other woman looked away. You got monthly stains on your britches, Annie had observed as she brought Alice a pile of folded laundry the pre previous evening. I couldn't get it all out, so there's still a small mark there. She had paused and added, just like last month. Alice had bristled, bristled at the idea of this woman monitoring her monthlies. She had the sudden sensation of half the town discussing her apparent failure to fall pregnant. It couldn't be Bennett's fault, of course. Not their baseball champ, not their golden boy. You know, my cousin, the one over at Berea, she couldn't fall pregnant for love nor money. I swear her husband was at her like a dog. She went to one of them snake-handling churches. Pastor, I know you disapprove, but hear me out. They put a green guard around her neck, and she was with child the very next week. My cousin said the baby has eyes as gold as a copperhead's, but then he always was the imaginative type. Oh, my Aunt Lola was the same. Her pastor had the whole congregation praying for God to fill her womb. Took them a year, but they got five children now. Please don't feel obliged to do the same, said Alice. <laughs> you know, I think it's all this riding the girl is doing. It's no good for a woman to sit astride all day. Dr. Freeman says it jiggles up a lady's insides. <laughs> well, yes, I do believe I have read as much. Mr. Van Cleve picked up his salt shaker and waggled it between his fingers. It's like if you shake a jar of milk up too much, it turns sour. Curdles, if you like. My insides are very much uncurdled, thank you, Alice said stiffly, then added, but I would be interested to see the article. Article, said Pastor McIntosh, that you mentioned where it says a woman shouldn't ride a horse for fear of jiggling. It's not a medical term I'm familiar with. The two men looked at each other. Alice dragged her knife across a piece of chicken, not looking up from her plate. Knowledge is so important, don't you think? We all say at the library, without facts, we really do have nothing. If I genuinely am putting my health at risk by riding a horse, then I think it would be only responsible for me to read this article you're talking about. Perhaps you could bring it with you next Sunday, Pastor. She looked up and smiled brightly across the table. Well, said Pastor McIntosh after a moment, I'm not sure I could lay hands on it just like that. 
Well, the pastor has a lot of papers, said Mr. Van Cleve. The funny thing is, Alice continued, waving a fork for emphasis, in England, merely all the well-brought-up ladies ride. They go out hunting, jumping ditches, fences, all sorts. It's almost compulsory. And yet they pop out babies with extraordinary efficiency. Even the royal family, pop, 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 like shelling peas. Do you know how many children Queen Victoria had? And she was always on a horse. They couldn't pull her off. The table had grown quiet. Well, said Pastor Macintosh, that, that is most interesting. It can't be good for you, though, dear, said the pastor's sister kindly. I mean, strenuous physical activity is not good for young women at the best of times. Goodness, well, you'd better tell some of the mountain girls I see every day. These women are chopping firewood, hoeing vegetable patches, cleaning house for men who are too sick or too lazy to get out of bed. And strangely, they too seem to have all those babies, one after the other. Alice said Bennett quietly. I can't imagine two of them, too many of them are just floating around, flower arranging and putting their feet up. Or perhaps they have a different biological makeup. That must be it. Perhaps it's a medical reason I haven't heard for that too. Alice, said Bennett again. There is nothing wrong with me, she said angrily. She was furious to hear the tremor in her voice. It was what they had needed. The two older men exchanged kindly looks. Oh, don't you get yourself worked up now. We're not criticising you, Alice, dear, said Mr Van Cleve, reaching across the table and placing his plump hand over hers. We understand it can be a disappointment when the Lord doesn't bless you straight off, but it's best not to get emotional about it, said the pastor. I tell you what, I'll say a little prayer for you both when you're next in church. Oh, that's most kind of you, said Mr Van Cleve. Sometimes a young lady doesn't know what's in her own interests. That's what we're here for, Alice, to mind your best interest. Now, Annie, where's that sweet potato? My gravy's getting cold here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, the Lord has not blessed her womb. No. Or filled it, as you said. Nobody Ooh. else has filled it either. Well, I know. <laughs> I mean, if there was some filling going on, there might be some babies happening, but exactly. no spoilers. <laughs> God, you're going straight for it. Um, so let's talk about um, the five um, librarians and, okay. and who they are. We, we had a little bit about Marjorie, yep. and I want to talk a bit more about her, because okay. she strides in right at the start of the yep. book. You know, she's there, she's got a shotgun and her, her broad hat on. She's quite butch. She's a butch number, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, she is a bit butch. Um, but yeah, Marjorie's the kind of character who just drops into your head sometimes fully formed. She was such a joy to write because basically she's one of those characters who just doesn't care what anybody else thinks. Yeah. And given that Kentucky at the time was quite a patriarchal place, and the more I read up about it, the more oppressed the women became, yeah. I felt that it was really necessary to have someone in there who was just going to bust out of that and be kind of, I don't know, inspirational for the rest of us. Well, she, she gives no shits. No, she gives no... Uh, uh, that, well, that's what I would have said, Damien. Yeah. yeah, she gives no shits. She basically, gives that's no it. She, yeah. she, I mean, she really doesn't... Which is extraordinary. And she's really judged for it at the time. Like, yeah. you know, the people in Baileyville sort of respect her, but she's also... She's also a bit suspect, and the fact that she reads books also makes her kind of suspicious, because, you know, that's not very ladylike. Yeah, and one of the books that she takes a special pride in is um, a book that gets passed around secretly at the library uh, to do with female bodily autonomy and sexual enjoyment, <laughs> um, which is a famous book, which, of course, has gone clean out of my head now. <laughs> OK, it's, 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 got, it's a little blue book. It is I a little blue that, book, that yeah. detail. It's the very famous book it, that got... Mary Stokes. Mary Stokes. It's the Mary Stokes yeah. book, yeah, which was banned in America until a federal court overturned the ban. Um, 
So I, you know, I made sure that the timing was right. But yes, yeah. Marjorie is a great fan of the book, and so is her boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you use quotes throughout from the book. Yes, the book's I do. Probably actually about to be banned again. Let's face uh, probably, it. it probably, yeah, is. in Kentucky, yeah, um, Alabama. But but I, I, you, you you talk about the book, and the book is talked about in hush in yeah. hushed terms. So it was illegal in Kentucky, but then a federal government made it legal. So the women share it secretly amongst themselves, and it's basically telling them. Well, about it's not their actually illegal at that point. But yeah. as you'll know, if you've visited different parts of America, is that some states basically play by their own rules, yeah. and uh, you could you could do something legally and yet be massively frowned upon within you know, society, and a book about sex would be one of those things, yeah. especially in the 1930s. And that, the fact that the horseback librarians are distributing this book gets them tainted with suspicion and all kind, into all kinds of it, trouble. Well, it's a mixed response, yeah. because what I wanted to make clear is that men get a lot of pleasure from this book as well, because yeah. there, is a, there is a part of the book where the women start sharing it around, and there's a lot of very happy men suddenly, because, um, I mean, it's, it's a really forthright book. I, I read it cover to cover. And, Did you um, know, Yeah, it's about yeah. <laughs> research, Damien. You yeah, wouldn't research. expect me not to do my yeah. research. But it is about, you know, pleasure for men as well as pleasure yeah. for women. And um, um, can I just quite ask a radical idea. We're in a library. While we're talking, it would be great if you could have a look and see if you've got a copy of the, <laughs> the Mary Stokes book, just to share it around, you know, share the love, quite literally. Um, so, but just back to... They won't to, concentrate then. Yeah, no, yeah, they okay. um, Just back to Marjorie, though. So yeah. she's from a family... Um, of moonshiners. She's yeah, from moonshiners. a bad family. And the thing about um, small towns and names is that your, your name goes before you, which is one of Marjorie's problems, which is yeah. people judge her by her father's name. And so, in the end, she doesn't care. She just does what she wants. Okay. Um, and then you, you, you mentioned there Alice Van Cleve, yeah. who starts life in Surrey. Yes. Basically kind of under house arrest. You know, she's sort of like... She is. Well, she's she comes from a sort of upper middle class, very repressed family. And uh, having behaved rather badly... Um, is sort of restricted. Her movements are restricted until everybody forgets what she's done. Mm. And then into this comes a, a congregational visit from the Kentucky Free Church or whatever it was. And, um, and she meets Bennett, who is terribly handsome, looks like a kind of American movie star, chiseled jaw, blonde hair, yeah. perfectly groomed. Anne falls instantly in love. And he thinks she's like a princess because she has this cut glass accent and she's beautiful and slim. And they marry in haste without either of them really understanding who the other person is. And by the time she reaches Kentucky with his father, the very overbearing Mr. Van Cleve in tow, yeah. she's already realising that she may have made a mistake. Yeah. And she's too far from home to do anything about it. And home yeah. seems quite glad to be... Yes, they're not they're desperate not to have her back. No, yeah. they're not terribly yeah. sad about her. So let's talk about her as a character. I mean, she has, a, she has blonde bobbed hair. Yeah. And she's quite impulsive, isn't she? And people... Are about, people seem to be anxious around her because they're never quite sure what she'll do. Well, it's the fear of the other as yeah. well. I mean, you know, if you... If you it, even I, in modern-day rural Kentucky, got a lot of attention because I don't speak like everybody else does, and they're, quite, they're often quite insular communities, especially yeah. mountain communities. Yeah. They're not used to outsiders. I mean, I, I, had, I remember going to fill the car up with gas, and I had to say can I have some gas four times before anybody even understood what I was saying? It's, you know, it can be, it depends where you go, but it can yeah. be quite different. So I, I just tried to push that back to the 1930s and imagine how much more extreme mm. that sense of the other would be. And yet, even within that territory, you would have the mines, which had a really unusually 
international flavour, but they were so much a kind of feudal system cut off from the rest of the world yeah. that there was very little interaction between the town and the mines. Yeah, so the miners didn't come into Baileyville, did no. they? They sort of stayed out They were there. obliged by the mine owners to buy all their stuff from the company store, usually at extortionate rates, and use the mine doctor and use the mine school and mm. live within the mine. I mean, it, the reason the great Harlan mine disputes happened in 1937 was because it was, it was like a form of slavery. Yeah. Um, and actually, lots of black people worked there, um, but they were classified as mulattoes yes. so that they could be employed. Because, it because they mean, weren't allowed to be employed. Because they weren't allowed to yeah. be employed. And Under the, the Jim Crow rules. And that's the Van Cleef family business, right? Yes, Mi- it is. Mining, mining is how they yeah. make their money. And, and being a bad mine owner as well. Like, I yeah. mean, not, not very few of them were good at that time, it has yeah. to be said. If you read up about it, it was an extraordinarily harsh and exploitative way of uh, living. But... Um, Yes, Mr. Van Cleve is the worst of the lot. Yeah, he is a bad man. Yeah. It's, and it, it's one of the things about the book um, that really made it feel very relevant and very contemporary in an unexpected way, because I, I thought it was going to be a period piece. Yeah. Um, and, and it is in the Mary Stopes book. Um, but um, Sorry, that was a terrible joke about periods. Um, oh. But um, <laughs> oh, I thought I'd have to outline that. Yeah, um, okay. But periods are actually quite important in this book. But anyway, <laughs> no spoilers. Um, but but um, the, 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 the coal mining family, uh, their interests are pitted against everybody else. Yes. Um, because they're, they're destroying the environment. So, yeah, and you know, it's we've still got a kind of early I mean, The more I read up happening. about this story, the more it just felt modern. I mean, you have everything. You have exactly that. You have huge corporations exploring the landscape and the people who live in it. Yeah. You have oppression by the patriarchy. You have, uh, you know, the fight back against fake news and, you know, f- facts being replaced by skewed facts, shall we yeah. say. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, this is, this is all here. It's, it's, it's a modern-day story. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the other librarians. So there's Sophia. Yeah. Sophia. She? Well, I, I wanted a woman of colour in this book. Yeah. And the tricky thing about Kentucky at that time was it was incredibly white. Mm. And those... Uh, people of colour who did exist tended to exist in the worst possible parts of life. And I just didn't want that to be... I didn't want a maid. I didn't want... Mm. And then I discovered that Louisville had the first national... Uh, I think... I can't remember how they described it because it's east and west, but they, they introduced the first two coloured people's libraries as they, as they described them. Yeah. And that was a, a first for the United States as a whole. So I was able to make Sophia a librarian, yeah. which was perfect because then she's on an equal footing to everybody else even if the society that she works in doesn't see it like that. And because of the ways that, um, uh, that the Jim Crow laws were viewed at the time, yeah. she had to work at night when nobody knew she was there because yeah. she wouldn't have been allowed to use a library that white people used. Yes, so, so there's, the, there's a part, I think, in, in, the, in the statute that Eleanor Roosevelt um, worked on and wrote where she said that the libraries were, for, they were to be segregated, but the, the travelling libraries were for the benefit of everybody. Everybody, yeah. Um, uh, but Sophia has to work there at night so, yeah. because people, again, it's legal for her it's to legal, be there, yeah. but it's not acceptable exactly. for her to be there and she has to try and keep herself safe. And she can't borrow a book. No, she can't borrow a book. <laughs> she can just so clean up. Yeah. Twisted. Yeah. And she's one of my absolute favourite characters. No, in she's the, the grown-up in yeah. the book. She's the, she's the most mature and sensible and organised of the librarians. The yeah. rest of them are a little chaotic. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and yet they form this sort of merry band. So let's talk again about that scheme. Mm. So was it paid for by the government? Yes, it it was. Um, I I, I think I've included the amount in there. I couldn't tell you what it is. But it was something like $32 a month, which was a reasonable wage, especially for women. And uh, they were paid to... 
they, they would rent horses from local landowners and usually someone would offer up a cabin that they could build the library in. And they are extraordinary, these cabins. They are, you know, they're built, they're really rough wood, people made of them what they would. Are they still there? No, okay. no, I went looking for them. And, yeah. and in fact, I went to... Uh, Baileyville is loosely based on Beattyville, which right. uh, is where one of the original libraries was, which turns out now to be the opiate capital of America, yeah. Yeah. Um, which I discovered after I'd booked my ticket, right. <laughs> which okay. is how I ended up staying in a cabin on the side of a mountain. Yes. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll come to <laughs> Sorry, the cabin we'll on the side that, of yeah. that in a minute, which is starting to sound a bit Breaking Bad. But, right. um, uh, but so, so what were the books that were given out by the women? Because you mentioned Black Beauty. It was there. everything. It was everything from fiction to yeah. uh, magazines of the time. I went on to um, eBay and got loads of the magazines from the time because I find that if you... If you can look at the adverts from a period, you get a much better sense of, of what people's preoccupations were at the time. And so, um, yeah, a lot of the little quotes at the beginning of the chapters are lifted from the furrow of Women's Home Companion. Um, what were the advertising? Oh, God, they're obsessed with um, constipation, which <laughs> surprised me because... That were the opiates. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, there weren't opiates at no, that no, point. Um, and also just about women keeping their hands nice with all the um, scrubbing and laundry and just lots of women looking at absolutely downcast at um, not being able to look fresh and dewy when their husbands came home. It's just terrifying. Uh, and, but then fiction, you know, yeah. Black Beauty. Uh, Little Women plays a very key part in this book. Um, and, and also lots of factual books, books on child-rearing, books on medicine. Uh, yeah, there were, it was a, a huge spread. Anything that you might be able to get in a library, you would yeah. get in a travelling library. Um, and were most of their customers women or men? No, or? all across the yeah. board. And in fact, one of the things that the librarians did do was read to sick people as well. So there's a scene in it where uh, a, li uh, a minor is dying from black lung, which was a, a very common ailment in, in minors. And it was not, you know, there are pictures that exist of librarians coming to read to the men who have black lung. Yeah, yeah. that's a really cry-making scene. Oh, my book, God, I yeah. Well, I cried when I yeah. read it, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I cried when I read it. Excellent. Um, yeah, thanks. Um, so, um, so the scheme went on for how long? Seven years. Okay. Um, and it's never existed since. Right. Uh, and, in fact, Kentucky still doesn't have any kind of good mobile library system, which is why it remains one of the poorest states in the whole of the United States. Right. That link between... Which is why libraries are important. Yeah. Yeah. No. But it also did make me think, as many things do, but it did make me think about Dolly Parton. Yeah. Um, and, and, and her imagination library and the fact of her, you know, spreading books to people. But, you know, it shouldn't be up to individuals to be doing it. It should be, should be the state that's doing it. it but absolutely her, should. Her, her father um, called her the book lady. And that's what your characters are called at certain points in the book. They're called the book ladies by, by That's the what children. the librarians were called. Yeah. The yeah. book ladies. By children. Yeah. yeah. It's very sweet. And they taught children to read as well, didn't they? Yes, they, they? did. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, so many of these children were not allowed to go to school because they had to be around for pickling and canning. Um, and lots of girls weren't considered, it wasn't considered right that they should go to school because mm. their concern should be the Bible and looking after the home, nothing else. So yeah. this was quite a radical act. Yeah. No, it was and would be again if it was to if it was to run. And in other parts of the country, I mean, there were people with horses in Kentucky, but there were boats. Yeah, there were boats in Mississippi, yeah. uh, trucks. Um, yeah, I mean, people just used all sorts of methods to get whatever suited. But um, if you go to Kentucky, the creeks are really narrow and all the roads follow the path of the creek because it's the only way through the mountains. Right. So that, that horseback was the, the best way. way. And actually, often the librarians would tie their horses up somewhere and walk the last few miles uh, on foot because it was impassable by horse. 
Um, or mule. So let's talk about your research and ending, yeah. and ending up in the cabin in the woods. Yeah. What, what was the cabin like and, and what so was So I'll, I'll tell you how I came to that, which okay. is when I first realised I was going to go to Beattyville, uh, I... If you if you type Beattyville into Google, um, the first thing that comes up is a Guardian long read about how it's the the opiate capital of America and how dangerous and horrible it is, and so I then was slightly filled with fear um, and Googled. I thought, well, I'll have to drive. You go on your own. At that point, yeah. yes. And so I thought, well, I'll have to drive 50 miles a day and stay somewhere way outside Beattyville. So I Googled five-star hotels within 50 miles of Beattyville. <laughs> and Google went, nah. <laughs> so I said, four-star, nah. Three-star within 100 miles, <laughs> nah. So I then thought, okay, what do I do? So I, um, I went onto the Kentucky Tourist Board and said, is there anywhere I can stay that I'm not going to end up, you know, in a horrible newspaper headline somewhere? And they gave me a list of bed and breakfasts, and, I, and this one seemed to be the least eccentric, which wasn't saying much, actually. <laughs> and um, I rang up, and uh, they said, oh, yeah, we got two rooms. One's called Sweetie and one's called Pearl. And I went, <laughs> okay, <laughs> right. Well, she doesn't sound like a serial killer, at least. So, yeah. And um, I turned up there, and it's seven miles down a dirt track in a holler, and I was met so by... So what's a holler? A holler is like a... It's like a valley between two lines of mountains. Right. Um, a hollow, but holo. they all call it a hollow. Right. And uh, so I, I met Barbara, who this book is going to be dedicated to. She, I think she was 70 when I first met her. Tiny woman. She's lived there for sort of 50 years. And um, actually, no, she's lived there for 40 years. And I said to her one day, because we've become very friendly, because I've been out and stayed many times, I said, um, can I tell my mountain lion story? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. can, yeah. It involves swearing, so I apologise in advance. Um, they can take it. Okay, you can take it. So I said to her, Barbara, how come you end up, ended up living here? Because it's you know, miles from anywhere. And she said, oh, well, honey, my husband left me with two small children, so I needed somewhere to go. And I thought I could start a marijuana farm here, but um, the first two crops failed. <laughs> it's like, okay, that wasn't quite the answer I was expecting. <laughs> So I said, oh, and how, how long did it take for you to get over your husband leaving? Because he ran off with her best friend. And she said, oh, well, I just about cried every day for eight years. Oh. And I said, oh, wow. And she said, oh, I was so tired because I was pulling my water from the well and I was growing my own food and I had these two young children. She said, one day I came outside, I lay down in the long grass and I thought, I can't do this no more. I'm so tired, I just, I can't do it no more. And she said, I lay down, I shut my eyes, and I opened my eyes five minutes later, and there's this big old mountain lion just looking at me. And I went, okay. And she said, and she was the size of a table. And I knew she had young, because I'd been looking at her through my binoculars on the other side of the holler. And I said, what did you do? She said, well, I lay there for a minute. She said, I thought my kids are inside, my gun's inside. She said, and so after a minute, she said, I sat up, and I went, oh, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, what did she do? She went, she fucked off. I, said, I never saw her no more. Never saw her again. Never saw another mountain really? lion there again. Word got, word got yeah. out among the mountain lions. Out. That was a woman with no fucks left to give. Yeah, exactly. she, just, she was just done. And that, to me, absolutely exemplifies the spirit of the women that I met yeah. out there. Like, they're just getting on with it, and there comes a point where like, they're just too tired for your crap, yeah, yeah. basically. Yeah. You, the, the situation you're describing sounds like the situation from the novel. The women in the novel are drawing she, the, the water they from the are, well. They're, they're chopping, the yeah. wood, they're growing well, their food. Well, this is what happened. I went and I stayed in one of Barbara's cabins, and it's the oldest one she has. Basically, what she did, she's built 
cabins all over this 350-acre hollow. Yeah. And mine, the one I stay in, is the oldest one. It's tiny. Um, it dates back to 1830, which is older than almost any other building in like three states. And you go in and it's got... Um, and I thought, I booked this and I thought, I can do this. This is going to be great. I'm going to yeah. go and stay and I'm going to... And then it was night time. <laughs> <laughs> and I was seven miles down a dirt track with no Wi-Fi, no phone signal. Uh, yeah, lots of people with guns. And then I went to lock the door and there are no locks on the doors. There's just those little pin things that you do with curtains. Oh, God. And so I thought, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> but I, didn't, I couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. Um, so I thought, it's fine. I'm here for a week. I will just stay awake all night and work, and then I'll sleep in the day. It'll be fine. That's such a bonkers solution I to know, that problem. I know, but like, I what mean, else like, was I going to do? I mean, you could have gone to a hardware shop and bought a boat. No, 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 I you mean, don't understand how remote... You can't drive at night because you will fall off the track. Barbara really? doesn't let people drive at night if oh they don't know God. the track because it's, it's not like seven miles down a... A road. Yeah, it's like... You know, you have to watch that you don't go over the edge. It's it's oh quite a God. thing, and um, and yeah, and then I just heard Barbara out through because you you can shout across the Jojo, you go outside now. I thought, what the fuck is she talking about? And I didn't want to go outside because, as far as I was concerned, that whole mountainside, which was full of woodland and doctor, was now full of serial killers and yeah. men with guns, and that's yeah. all I could see. She, you go outside now. Go outside now. And I went outside, and the whole of the mountain was alive with fireflies. Like, oh. it was pulsing. It was like nothing I had ever seen. And then the sky cleared, and the stars came down to meet them. It was like, it was extraordinary. It was a heavenly, heavenly sight. And I was so transfixed, just gazing at this thing, that I couldn't be frightened. Mm. You know, th there were no serial killers in there. There was just a trillion fireflies. And there is a scene in that book because I yeah. couldn't waste that. It was the most magical thing. And I slept every night there with like a baby. And now yeah. I stay there and I don't wor worry about the, the pinlocks. Barbara says, oh, I've lived here 40 years. If anyone frightens me, I just go out with my gun and shoot them up a little bit. <laughs> How much do we love Barbara? Oh, I love her. She's just, so much. I want to be Barbara when I grow up. Yeah. Um, um, so th this brings me to the nature writing. Yeah. This is a new thing for you in a way in the book. I mean, you're obviously not conscious of having done it, but it's a book that's full of nature writing. Right in the very first paragraph, you're talking about these leaves bravely hanging to the hickory trees in the depths of winter and the water dripping mm -hmm. off them. And there are so many beautiful descriptions um, of, of that part of the world. It reminded me actually a bit of Charles Frazier. Of, of, of oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I reread Nightwood several times because he has that beautiful way of speaking that is so informed by Appalachia. Yeah. You know, they all speak like that. They speak fully formed and it comes from Elizabethan England. Yeah. In, it's so interesting. Do you remember when he came to a salon? Yes, I do. do you know? Yeah, no, I never forgot it. It was a really special night. He was really good. And he talked about the words um, that, that um, First Nations people had for when they'd seen an elephant. Do you remember that came in the circus? No. Do you not remember it? And, uh, and there was no word for elephant and so they called them butterfly ears and, that, and that's still the language that was yeah, used yeah. At the, the Ch in Cherokee I remember that really clearly he was such a lovely man he really was did you not look him up when you were over should no. have done. Should have called him up and said hi. He would have loved to hear from you. But um, but then but the nature writing yeah. is, is a really is a really big bit of it. And I'm just struck by how much you, that must have impressed itself on you, the landscape. You can't when you were there. be in this landscape and not feel it. You just it, it's it's an extraordinary. It gets you on a cellular level. I can't really, really? articulate it better than that. And I you know I'm come from Hackney. <laughs> I'm not somebody who. I'm not a, a natural yomper, mm. but I, the last time I went out, I just spent a week walking the mountains by myself. Um, and it's, 
it was important to me to go out there for at least three seasons because it's so extraordinarily different when you when you go out. Um, it's so bleak in winter and it's so lush and I don't know. It's, it's sexy and hot and and oh the bugs everywhere are horrendous. But it's yeah. it's such a different place and so. I, I walked the mountains all the time, or I rode the mountains. Yeah. I, I borrowed horses and I, I did the trails that they would have, might have done, who yeah. knows, and saw the places where the Indians sat and ground their corn and all that stuff. And, it, and these are trails that you wouldn't get to by a car, yeah. uh, through a car. And so, so you've um, got to see the country from a really different a really perspective as well. Really different perspective. Yeah. And also what I discovered, having arrived there quite trepidatiously, yeah. was that, yes, there was a lot of poverty, and yes... Uh, there were places I probably wouldn't have stopped by myself at night. Yeah. But the people are extraordinary. They are charming. They are storytellers, one and all. They can, you know, they can make you laugh. To, I, I would go for breakfast at Barbara's communal table and think, well, I'll, I'll have a 20-minute breakfast and then I'll go back to work. And then you'd be there two hours later <laughs> listening to people talking about the worst cockerel, they, the meanest cockerel I ever met, um, or the guy who... I have to tell you this story because it made me laugh so much. The, there was a man, who, a farmer, who told me that um, the school bus stops at the end of this seven-mile uh, thing, and he said... Um, I was walking down there to meet my kid, he said, and uh, I saw a dead deer in the road. This was November or December, and he said, uh, so I thought, oh, okay, I know what to do with that. He said, so I ran home, it was about two miles, uh, waited till the school bus pulled off, I ran back again with my Santa suit on, when the next school bus came, I laid down next to the dead deer, and all the children started screaming! <laughs> He told it a lot better than I just told it, but <laughs> it was so funny. Like, they, they just, that's how they amuse themselves. So, yeah, just that, pretending to be dead Santa, yeah. like, just to make the school children that was cry. His, that's his first reaction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I thought, yeah. you know where you thought that was going. He was going to go home, take the deer, yeah, skin gonna, it, like, eat, it. eat it. No, yeah. no, no, he just wanted to be dead Santa. Dead Santa. <laughs> that's completely brilliant. Um, were you ever scared when you were there at all, then, apart from that first night? Um, I, I was a little nervous of the snake. Uh, I, I came across a snake one day when I was walking in a remote bit, and, but I was actually more worried that the snake was going to get driven on because it was on a road. Mm. Um, so I thought I would poke the snake and get it off the road. So just, just hold that thought. Yeah. You thought you would poke the snake <laughs> to get the snake off the road? Yeah. Okay, great. And, and it was a long stick. Yeah. It was a long stick. And, um, long snake? Not that. Well, I don't know. I don't have a lot of snakes to go by. <laughs> um, so I did. I started to poke the snake, and uh, it was fine for a bit, and then it got quite cross. And then, all seeing Barbara, who must have been somewhere, I heard her voice across the hall. George R. Morris, did I see you poking a snake? <laughs> <laughs> so when I came back, and I went, yeah. And she said, how did you know it wasn't a batter? I said, it didn't look like a biter. Yeah. How do you know what a batter looks like? I don't. Oh my God, girl, you ain't got the sense you was born with. Good God. Yeah. So uh, I didn't poke any more snakes after yeah. that. Yeah. And so, and you're still going back there, even though I you, do. Even yeah. When you finish yeah. Writing. No, I just. Uh, I, if you told me that Kentucky would become my kind of happy place, I wouldn't have believed you. It's not. It's not got much going for it in terms of attractions. But yeah. if you like, I don't know, just living something. The food is great at Barbara's. I wouldn't yeah. go much beyond that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Actually, if you like kind of southern food, there's yeah. some great food. I'm, I'm, and Lexington is an amazing town that has great food. But uh, yeah, if you just like getting lost in 
in a mountain and, I don't know, just talking to people. If you like talking to people, it's yeah. a great place. If you're nosy and you like to hear people's stories, yes. then yes, it's a great place to go. So this is going to do for Kentucky what Corelli's mandolin did for Corfu. I mean, it really is. <laughs> I hope it's going not. to send, well, you know, it's going to send, people are going to want to go there and see it. I mean, it really made me want to did go it? there. Yeah, okay. it really did. Because, I mean, seasonally it's so different, but I just, I just, it felt, I don't know, it felt excessively wild. Yeah. Um, and, but also, like, a, not like England, you know. It's so where, not like where everything yeah. is just so, and has been inhabited for yeah. centuries and it's orderly and controlled. I mean, there's danger there, but, you know. But it's kind of up to you to avoid it, I suppose. That's yeah, and I just it. like the fact that it's not one of those places that people from Britain tend to go. Yeah. Um, it, Did you, you meet know, any other British people when no. you were there? Oh, God, yeah. no. No. Yeah. No. Were you the first British person that quite a lot of people had? No, met? no, she does get a few, a few odd people out there, odd people. But she's, I mean, her, her cabins are interesting. She, for example, she lets uh, musicians go for free if they sing for their supper, literally. Right. So often you'll turn up and she just has you know, music going on, so you can just sit and listen to men playing guitars and singing, and it's, it's just magic. She's, she's kind of old school. She yeah. just does things her way, and you realise how much of your travel experience has been corporatized and mm. turned into something that's packaged mm. when you go there and, and, yeah, and Barbara's shouting at you about your failure to wash ticks from your trousers. Yeah, it's actual, authentic. Actual yeah. hospitality. Yeah. Has she read the book yet? Yes, she was the first person who read it because... I listened to a lot of people talking about how much they hated other people writing about Appalachia mm. and how wrong they got it. They have very strong views on being portrayed as hillbillies and, uh, you know, rednecks. And I was terrified that Barbara would think I had done that in even a small way. And so she was the first person who read it and I, I bit my nails for about a week and she loved it, thank goodness. She had a couple of linguistic things that she wanted to yeah. iron out, but she, and she's now my greatest saleswoman over there. Like I get weekly <laughs> calls going, Jojo, jo, when's that book coming out? <laughs> I got a whole library full of people waiting here. Um, yeah, she's, she's wonderful, yeah. Um, you must be doing a tour there. I am going to do Louisville. Yeah, I am. Yeah, and uh, yeah, the the coach party is already planned. Apparently, <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. Barbara's going to be there. Barbara's the going to be there heckling. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. And the book is going to be adapted for film. Yes. I mean, it's it's such a cinematic. Well, it's, book. it's funny. I just this was such a cinematic book to write, and um, Alison Owen, who's the producer, talked to me about it when it was just a germ of an idea, and she was one of the first people who was really, really enthusiastic because, to be honest, sometimes if you said to people, I want to write a book about pack horse librarians in Kentucky in the Depression, you get the same response that I got when I said I wanted to write a book about a guy in a wheelchair who wants to kill himself. Yeah. Um, and Alison got it. And then we've got a fantastic director on board, or Parker, uh, yeah. who's here as well. They're both so, here tonight. Yeah, we're, we've got the team the all ready team. to go. Amazing. And are you going to be as involved in it as you were with me before you? I'm not writing it, but I am very much heavy breathing over everybody's shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> that must be nice for you. <laughs> I don't know. Um, okay, and when, and when does work start on that? Is it started? Uh, Do you have a writer? When the script is finished. When the script is finished. <laughs> yeah. Okay. When you say it was cinematic, it's right. Talk, talk me through that experience as a writer. Because the... Well, I don't know, I think some writers see things, well, they don't see things, they hear things. Some, yeah. some writers spend hours crafting the perfect sentence. I see stuff, and mm. I, I try and translate it as a scene. And I, I thought everybody did that until I actually started talking to other writers and found out that they don't. And I think it's why my work is quite easy to adapt, because... Mm because I'm not wordy. I, I mean, I, perhaps that's the leftover from newspaper days. Your, your job is to tell a story with clarity mm. and perhaps make the reader 
drop into it. Um, and if they fail to do that, that's your fault. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that, that's carried over. Um, and going back to what you were saying about people thinking, oh, that sounds like it's, you know, it's really odd for her to be writing this historical fiction. Yeah. But I mean, you, you've written historical fiction before. I have, yeah. Uh, you know, several books ago, but you mm. have done, and this is territory that you're familiar with. Was it nice to get back into research mode? It just felt like a completely different thing. This book, from the, from the off, has felt like something I've never done before. The, the research was a pleasure. The, the writing came out like, you know, most books, as writers will tell you, are like pulling teeth. And if you're lucky, one in every, I don't know, five or ten comes relatively easily. Mm. This one I couldn't stop. I mean, it was partly fear that someone else would pick up the idea because I, I thought it was such an amazing yeah. image and such an amazing idea. And I knew immediately what I wanted to do with it. And I just thought, if I've done that... And then George Takei um, posted on his kind of five million strong Facebook page oh look at this great story about pack horse librarians at which point i wanted to kill him i was just like <laughs> no george i liked you till now um so yeah that was me booking my second flight out yeah. uh, and i just thought well someone else might do it better but i'll do it faster <laughs> just no, it is terrific and you don't you you tie, you tie the ends up not too neatly i'm pleased yeah. to say but you tie you tie you tie the ends up but you do leave some stuff open and it feels like a world that you could go back to i would love to go back would to you? this would world you write i've never enjoyed world? writing something so much and i loved writing the women and i would yeah i would love to go back but it, it's going to depend on how it does if people like it yeah. yeah, I think you're going to be all right. Okay, yeah, thank you. I think, I, think, I think you'll be all right. Uh, I'm going to open up to questions uh, for Jojo about, well, not this book because you haven't read it, but about just about anything you'd like to ask her. Or it could be a question about Barbara. <laughs> she's so, like the most interesting person in the thing. She's yeah. completely thrilling. Um, no, I mean, I really do want to meet Barbara. Do you think you could get her I'll bring over? her over. I'll bring her over. Has she been to the UK? I'm not sure. I'll bring her over. Okay. You heard it here first, she did promise. Okay, but questions, questions. Yes, questions, yes, questions. Yes. Don't be shy. Hiya, hiya, Jackie. Um, so, are you, are you, you allude to your love of horses. Are you a horse rider? Have you been a lifelong horse rider? I yes. am, yeah. I, I was the girl who grew up in Hackney and bought a horse anyway. Um, yeah, my first horse was kept behind Hackney Town Hall. Um, and now I have... Uh, How did you get away with that? Oh, no, it was, it was a little yard before right. everything got turned into luxury right. flats. Right. Yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah. Uh, no, it was... Um, yeah, so you still ride? I do still ride quite badly, um, and uh, I don't have a horse anymore. But I share my daughter's when she's at university. Yeah. Um, what's the difference between a horse and a pony? <laughs> well, um, is a pony just small? Where's Daisy? Daisy, Daisy. is our Hickstead expert. Yeah, Daisy's our David, do you want to fill us in? Okay. Ooh. Oh my God, key horse. And back. I was going to say size. So yeah. there, Daisy's the expert. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you for that lovely question. I have to say, I know absolutely nothing about horses, apart from the fact that when I was Which five... Which I can tell by the way you're calling them horsies. <laughs> yeah. What, would, what else should I call them? Horses. Oh. <laughs> horses? Yeah. Horses. No. <laughs> horses. That's what you say to a toddler. It's like I say tortoises and people say tortoises. Yes. Also wrong. Also wrong, yeah. Um, horses. No, horses. Um, is that when I was a kid, 
Uh, when I was very little, I crept up behind one and I learned that you don't do that. Oh, Damien. I know. And you're and still so handsome. Oh, thank you very much. You didn't get the face. Um, um, but it was a Clydesdale. Yeah. Oh, and I, I, um, Do you know, and I don't remember it actually hitting me. What I remember so clearly is the feeling of going backwards through the air. Remember it so, wow. and my mother's face. Because um, when she realised that I was alive, she was so angry. <laughs> I was like, it would have been easier if I'd actually been killed not by the you, horse. You should say, not that you were alive, yeah. you should add. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, 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 not that I was alive. No, she was, she was absolutely fierce. And that really did put me off horses for quite a lot. <laughs> put me off horses. For, this is just racism now. Okay. I'm, this is actually, I'm being gaslit. Um, no, but it, it did put me off horses. And then, of course, my, si my sister, not of course, but my sister did, did get into them. Right. And she had like a whole two years of like pictures of okay. horses with, you know, buttercups and fields and stuff on the wall. Okay. To be replaced by David Beckham in short order. It was okay. quite an interesting graduation how that crossed the I should um, add that works. to those of you who don't like horses, um, you, can li you can enjoy the book without Oh, so this is the point horses. I'm trying to make is, is it's, not, it's not a horsey book. Right. Um, you know, they are, they are in there. They're not characters. It's not like they're talking no, no, or anything no. weird. <laughs> that I would be drawing the line at. That's but, um, the next book, yeah. yeah that, no, that's not the next book, Churchill. Um, I'm saying that for all of us. Um, yeah. uh, other, other question, yes, there, and then one at the front. Actually, you go first, because you're closest. Hiya, ask your question. Hiya. Hi. I'm a huge fan of all of your work. And oh, God, and you're American. <laughs> <laughs> the horror. How offended are you? Just, you can tell me, you can tell me. She's not offended. She's just up. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. I'll try. So I have two questions. Okay. First, I'm curious how you come up with the names of your characters. And second, I, just from all of your work, how much of it comes from personal experience? And, or things you've read versus things you've totally made up? So the question for those who didn't hear it is about, first of all, let's go with how do you name your characters? Um, it's really boring. I've, I've written so many books now that I tend to pick them off the names of the spines in my... Library. So you just look up and go like Yeah, that. and I say, have I used so-and-so before? And also, it has to fit the character. And I, I really like Marge. I just yeah. think, um, yeah, Marjorie, I just think you can yeah. play with that. And uh, Alice, I just needed a really English name. And uh, I didn't think I'd done an Alice before. So, yeah, yeah, it's that boring, I'm afraid. And as far as how much of my own experience goes into anything... I think there's always a lot of you that goes into your books without you often realising until several years later when you look back and you go, oh, that's what that book was about, and then it's cheaper than therapy. Um, <laughs> but often I don't know what I'm writing about until I reread it years later. Yeah. So what was me before you about then? That was about people dying in my family and, yeah. and being uh, unable to end their lives in the way that they would have chosen and me just constantly grappling with the question of um, what makes a life? How do you give somebody uh, dignity and pleasure and hope in a mm. life that doesn't have any? Mm. Um, and so, yeah, anybody who's had that in their own family has to confront those questions. And so that fed into it, yeah. Okay. Question um, up there. Yes, you'll have to show. Um, I don't think there's any, uh, I don't feel any pressure. Mm. Uh, to me, the, the story just appealed because it felt modern. I, I've never been told by any of my publishers what to write, which is probably why I didn't have a bestseller for eight years. Um, 
I, I just tend to write the stories that stick, um, and often you'll find that the stories that stick with you are things that have modern thematic concerns, because um, you know there's lots of stuff that we're worried about, and those are the things that tag on, like Velcro. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, all that stuff in there about the environment, reproductive yeah. rights, the freedom to read. The yeah, it just to spoke to me yourself. today, but um, I'm sure I'm sure publishers are happier if you can yeah. throw in some modern concerns but it none of that is done consciously it just comes through the story yeah and um, there was another hand up yes here lady okay. Yes, that's a really good question. So, the, the, okay. where, where does the giver, the, the giver of stars, the title? Uh, come the from? giver of stars is actually the title of a poem that forms a key moment in the book, and I don't want to say too much. It's 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 a lovely sensual poem, um, and it it lights Alice, Alice's imagination, shall we say? Not uh, just her imagination. As, <laughs> as the title of the book. Uh, I would say it took us about four months to title this book because we just couldn't agree. And it was, um, it was the most painful titling process I've ever been through. Luckily, I really like this, and I think everybody who's been part of it likes it too. So. Do you want to tell us some of the bad titles that it could have been? Because that's always fun. No. I, I'll go on. I remember S.G. Watson told us that before I go to sleep, it was going to be called The Diary of the Bluebird. It's like, just to make oh my God. It's just crap. Okay. Um, I think it was something equally bad, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, it was, when I wrote it, the working title was The Knowledge, um, right. and then everybody uh, on the English side of publishing said it sounds like a taxi cab. Yeah, um, yeah. Which, oh, God. <laughs> and you all agreed, didn't you? Um, but Give we it a got... market research there. Well done, Salon. Well done, yeah. <laughs> we got so desperate towards the end to find something yeah. that we were going through really bad country music songs and coming yeah. up with just titles that made me kind of hysterical, like... Yeah. Um, I, I can't even remember them now. I wish I could remember them, but they were <laughs> usually quite rude. I just lost the plot by that point. Yeah. yeah. So The Giver of Stars was a kind of graceful end to the procedure. It's a brilliant title. Um, it's very good. Yes. Oh, thank you. It's really, um, I really enjoyed hearing you read from the book. I wanted to ask you, so when you were out there doing your research... Yeah. Yeah, so, so sorry, just yeah, so, so sorry, given, given that, you know, that, that people aren't necessarily happy about how they've been portrayed mm. from that part of the world in fiction, did you tell people that you were there writing yeah. and, and how did Barbara take it when you told her? Uh, she took it very well because yeah. she's a really open-minded kind of liberal person and she, uh, there's a, a book out there that caused a huge um, stink called Hillbilly Elegy, oh, which yeah. I quite enjoyed, but then I don't come from Appalachia yeah. and they, there's a lot of people there, especially writers who feel that it sorely misrepresented their way of life. And Barbara is actually one of the few defenders because she knew the parents. <laughs> she was like, they were just like she that. Did. Yeah, oh she God. did. So That's she knows everybody. Yeah. She knows everybody. So um, that was interesting. But yeah, it, it was. it's a fine line to tread because you do want to represent people in their entirety. Uh, and that, you know, it's not a dream scenario yeah. uh, living out there by any stretch of the imagination. But at the same time, what I didn't want to do was to do the kind of hillbilly stereotype. Um, and it's not that, I have to say. It's not, and actually, I, would have hated I think that. the only answer to that is you have to just speak to loads and loads of people. And yeah. everybody has a, a, a different, nuanced take on, on that life. And, you know, everybody I met was interesting. So you never get that kind of straightforward stereotype. People are always more interesting. 
Um, you were doing the accents when you were reading it earlier, and I was teasing you about it, but when you write the characters, yeah. they're, they're written in straightforward English, but what you do really cleverly a couple of times in the novel is to say how somebody pronounces something. So there's a moment where, you know... Um, because Bennett's you're seeing talking. it through the prism of Alice's Englishness. That's so right. She, yeah. so, so Bennett says refined instead of refined. And, yeah. stuff. and I, I think that, that obviously was a choice that you must have made earlier Yeah, on. and that's yeah. the beauty, uh, and I slightly cheated with Still Me, the last book as well, by making Louisa an English woman in New York, because what you then do is you see that world translated through the eyes of an alien, yeah. which means that any mistakes you make are their mistakes rather than yours. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, God, I've let it go now, haven't yeah, I? It's, <laughs> yeah. it's a good technique. Yeah. You're hovering there with books. Have you got the Mary Stobes? Yeah. Oh, okay. oh, just casual. <laughs> just casual. Oh. Except these ones aren't blue. I've got a couple of um, additions here. So this is a looks very new but it's actually a rebound 1918 so first oh, wow. edition. oh wow um so that's a rather can rather i have a look please thing. and then this uh it has a slightly edition. alarming uh thing which alice takes over which is that where it says if a woman's not allowed to perform the natural completions of her sex functions she may die <laughs> so men i just want you to and take women, notice of men that. and women yeah <laughs> Um, I'm just going to through the contents here. Um, there's a letter from a priest at the beginning, which is a bit troubling. Letter from Father St. John. And then for chapter one is the heart's desire. Chapter two is the broken joy. That's not working out well, is it? <laughs> chapter three, woman's contrariness. Chapter four, the fundamental pulse. Chapter five, mutual adjustment. That just sounds like uncomfortable underwear. Um, chapter six, sleep. Yeah. Chapter seven, modesty and romance. Um, chapter 8, Abstinence, and then straight into Chapter 9, Children. Nice that they're juxtaposed <laughs> together. Uh, chapter 10, Society. And then do you want to read out the title of Chapter 11? <laughs> chapter 11, The Glorious Unfolding. <laughs> Thanks for that, Damien. Uh, this uh, will be available at the end of the session. <laughs> <laughs> She's going to get a nice sales bump. Thank you yeah. for finding that. Thank and you. please join me in thanking Jojo Boys and the London Library. Thank you, Jojo. If you want to hear more about my literary salon, and why wouldn't you after listening to that, you can find podcasts, pictures, tickets, and prizes, yes, prizes, on our website, theliterarysalon.co.uk.